0: Hi Beans and welcome to episode 105. Today I'm going to bring you such an awesome episode. I'm interviewing Professor Andrew Scully. He is a neuroscientist who studies the neurocognitive effects of natural products. He's published hundreds of peer-reviewed articles and he's also the Director of Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University. How awesome is that title? And This episode we're going to be talking all things cognitive enhancement, nootropics, I think you've heard of that term before and if you haven't you're going to get a really good understanding of what that is and also longevity and brain health. So he's an absolute expert in the field and also a bit of a disclaimer over over the last few months I have been working with a company called Arepa, it's a company from New Zealand, they make a nootropic drink which is a cognitive enhancer. And I've been absolutely loving what they do. And I thought it'd be really awesome to bring the head of their research programs onto the podcast to talk all things science of nootropics, how foods can enhance focus, attention, and how foods can also be neuroprotective and how they can assist in healthy brain aging. So, Professor Andrew Scoli has so much to offer. You guys are going to absolutely love it. But I did want to just give you that full disclosure that I do work with Arepa. And of course, I would only ever be talking to you guys about something that I truly, believe in which is backed by so much neuroscience so it's really really exciting and I am thrilled to bring you this episode so let's get straight into the interview. Okay perfect welcome Andrew Scully thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. So firstly I think the best thing to start with is I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners explain everything you've done up to now what your research is in what you specialize in the whole story.
1: Right, so uh, I'm Professor Andrew Scully. I'm um, I've got um, adjunct professorships at Monash and Swinburne Universities, um, and my area of research is really um, nutritional neuroscience. So, looking at the way and what what we um, what we eat affects our brains, mood, cognitive functions, memory. And really, um, over the course of the last, goodness, probably uh, 20, 25 years now, um, longer than I care to think about, uh, I've really <laughs> focused on the ways in which not just dietary patterns, but um, aspects of foods, even some supplements may help brain function. So many years ago, um we did a series of experiments looking at whether very high-quality um, herbal extracts, things like ginseng, ginkgo biloba, mm-hmm. um, lemon balm or Melissa officinalis, sage, um, guarana, whether these um, herbs with a reputation for having benefits to brain function actually did have those benefits. Um, I I should also say I was, um, extremely skeptical. Um, I, I, thought, you know, we'd be publishing a series of experiments showing that they didn't have any effect at all, that any effect was a yeah. placebo effect. Um, but, yeah, totally. uh, but I was wrong. And, um, in fact, uh, what happened was a, a series of studies showed that they did have benefits to cognitive function. Um, so-called, uh, nootropic effects, and that quite often these were in keeping with their traditional use. So um, things like, um, an example would be something like rosemary, which is mentioned actually in uh, in Shakespeare, in King Lear, as improving memory. Mm. Actually, we found it did improve memory. And these were really high-quality studies in that they were um, very, very... Carefully controlled, uh, which meant that they could be published in pretty high-impact journals as well. So uh, mm-hmm. we were lucky that they were very, you know, watertight in terms of having a, a good placebo. That you know, the, everyone was blinded to the condition, etc. And we used, yeah, we used standardized tests of memory and attention, etc.
0: I find that fascinating, and I find what's so interesting is sometimes people just did know best back years ago, hundreds of years ago, and you look at like ancient remedies, even like Chinese medicine, all of that, and you think these people just knew what they were doing and I think we've overcomplicated things a lot.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think probably that um, that mental function in a sense is probably a special case because um, if, you, if you, for example, if you get a bruise and you rub some you know exotic tincture onto the onto the bruise it's going to go away mm. and it will go away whether or not you've used that that application or not so, but I think with that's um, right with mental function I think there are probably enough people who are there are certain people who seem to be really well calibrated they're very sensitive to the you know the effects of things like recreational drugs for example but I think that those mm-hmm. people may be were able to pick up or um you know actually realize oh okay i am i am actually you know feeling a little bit sharper or i'm remembering things better my my mind just feels a bit clear um clearer or i'm feeling a lot calmer uh, after taking things and probably you know people were experimenting with with what they were um, eating and with you know well the the early kind of herbal herbal medicines and of course You know, nobody's surprised by the fact that there are extracts of plants which affect our mental function. Things like, um, you know, cocaine and uh, cannabis, et cetera, um, morphine, opiates, um, those sort of drugs. Of course, alcohol is often fermented from plant material. So nobody has any Mm. issue with those. And I guess it's just um, it's a similar idea but this is more cognition enhancement.
0: So can we talk about nootropics, what that is, and is there a difference between nootropic and a cognitive enhancer?
1: Um the short answer is no. <laughs> the, uh, oh. the the this there are sort of quite a few different definitions of nootropic, but the one that we use is just any substance which has the potential to imp- improve um, cognition. And I think that's yes, that's a definition that um, the journal Nature uses or it's close to the definition that the journal Nature uses. So um, it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then when we talk about nootropics, is there a difference between ones that improve your cognitive, will enhance your cognitive ability over the course of the next couple of hours of the day, or then something that's neuroprotective as well,
1: and something that's more long term. That's a really excellent question, and um, yeah, I mean we we tend to think about um, we tend to think about substances which improve cognition acutely. So you know, following a single mm-hmm. dose, I guess you know the most uh, widely used example of that would be caffeine, where we know that you know people yep. will take caffeine and uh, you know half an hour later it kicks in and there's a kind of, you know, has a half-life of four or five hours and it's eliminated. Um, and, and that would be a you know really clear example of um, an acute cognitive enhancer or no tropic. And that is, um, you know, examples of that. Other examples would be um, things like uh, methylphenidate or, or Ritalin as it's known as, mm-hmm. um, and, you um, yeah, a few others, modafinil is kind of a widely used acute cognitive enhancer or nootropic at the moment. Um, and then the the other um, aspects of that, which we were talking about, which in a sense is, is actually something that uh, myself and other colleagues have been working on more recently, are substances, which if you take them over a period of time, whether that's weeks or months or, or even longer, protect the brain against cognitive decline and possibly even dementia, which is a really um, exciting yeah. area. And so when we look at that, and, and, and that's um, that's a really interesting area um, f- from my point of view. And, and, and I think there's a sort of consensus in the field that the pharmaceutical approach to protecting the brain has really failed spectacularly. There's, you know, it's it's hard to really imagine that, um, you know, that of the millions or billions of dollars which have been invested into protecting the brain, there really hasn't been anything that's been um, effective. Um, There haven't been any blockbusters for the brain since really, you know, 1990, where a class of drugs emerged um, for for al- treating Alzheimer's disease. They're called the yep. uh, cholinesterase inhibitors, but effectively what they do is they they prevent uh, one of the signaling molecules in the brain from being broken down, this this molecule called acetylcholine, which we know um, is depleted in Alzheimer's disease. But even those drugs, even though they've been around for a few decades now, um, they, they might just buy... Um, a bit of respite for a few months in people with with mild a milder version of the disease, um, yeah. and you know I think it was sort of doomed to failure because the brain is so beautifully sort of balanced with different um, neurotransmitters. You know, it isn't there isn't a sort of one to one correspondence between what one brain chemical does and a behaviour. Um, it, it's very you know the, there's really big interactions between all of the neurotransmitters, and we're finding new neuro- neurotransmitters sort of, you know, all the time. Yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> and it does seem that there is emerging evidence that lifestyle factors in middle age or midlife or even earlier can have a profound effect on cognitive ageing. And so... Um, it won't surprise you that to know that it's the kind of usual suspects which seem to be effective. So um, things like exercise uh, and diet. Um, you know, when I did my my degree in the uh, in the Dark Ages, um, we were taught <laughs> that the brain doesn't produce any new neurons after about the age of you know three, maybe. Um, that mm-hmm. was absolute dogma. You know, it was never questioned. There's now Emerging evidence that that may not be the case that that, that there are certain ways in which the brain can um, produce new neurons. So, ne- birth of, birth of new neurons is called neurogenesis, or at least um, synaptogenesis, which is making new yeah. connections. And, and some of the evidence around this um, it's quite interesting. You know, about um, t- ten years ago or more was uh, work on. London taxi drivers who, uh, in order to pass or become a, a London taxi driver before before uh, GPS, they used to have to pass this thing, this mystical, the knowledge it was called. And um, I've
0: heard of that test. Yes. Yeah. And
1: so this would be effectively, you know, dropping a pin on a map, two pins on a map and saying, okay, what's the best route? But they didn't have the map in front of them to get from... Kings Cross to I don't know Fulham or something and they had to wow. describe the most uh, efficient route and so they were really really working um their their spatial memory and the spatial memory is served by an area of the brain called the hippocampus and it turned out that these London taxi drivers when they measured the size of the hippocampus it was bigger than in the rest of the population so so you know although you can't infer causality. You know, it could be that people who just had a bigger hippocampus became taxi drivers. Seems, seems a bit yeah. unlikely compared to the other way Weird. around. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so the hippocampus is really important for memory. We know it's an area of the brain which um, shrinks with ageing, but it's also seems to be exquisitely sensitive to lifestyle factors and in fact the the most um it seems that the 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 lifestyle um change which can have the biggest effect on on the hippocampus is exercise so aerobic exercise mm. in in animals and it looks like in humans although it's the data in humans is kind of suggestive because you can't you can't randomize people to exercise or not and then just you know um, Take their brains out and see how big their hippocampus are.
0: That's right, yeah, and it's also, I think, like you were saying before, like what's causality and what's correlation. Mm-hmm. But is there something there? I was do, I was trying, was reading up a little bit on this recently about exercise and the increase of neurotrophic factors, like brain-derived neurotrophic factor and things Absolutely. like that. Yeah. Is does that have the, an impact yeah. on the size? So, science?
1: so um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or um, uh, BDNF, as you. Um, is yeah, it's, it's it's certainly one of the major stimulators of synaptogenesis and possibly neurogenesis. Mm. The neurogenesis is is still a little bit controversial. It's sort of there are it goes through um, as as many things in in science. It goes through these sort of waves of evidence for and against. Um, yes. So, but yes, you're absolutely right. So so we know that exercise um, makes uh, BDNF increases circulating levels, so there's a really nice model for that. And then the other um, lifestyle factor which seems to be important is diet. Mm. So this is, um, uh, you know, a a really sort of emerging area showing that, uh, well, there's there's two aspects to it, actually. One is the, the sort of the side where, when we look at a, what's considered to be a good or a prudent diet, a diet with you know lots of um, brightly coloured and vegetables and green leafy vegetables, particularly the this so-called Mediterranean-style diet, with mm-hmm. um, few processed meats, more more whole fruits, oily fish, lots and lots of vegetables, um, very you know if if anything just a very small amount of red wine. Uh, cooking with extra vir- virgin olive oil, um, mm-hmm. that seems to infer some sort of protection of the brain, uh, whereas the you know what's been termed the Western diet, so a diet with lots of processed foods, lots of saturated fats, um, tends to be damaging to the brain, and particularly yeah. in fact particularly to the hippocampus. So um, right, yeah, some work by um, Uh, Felice Jacker who's at the Food and Mood Centre here in Melbourne or or actually down the road in Geelong um, has shown that uh, this western diet is associated with a with smaller hippocampal volume so this really important area of the brain for for memory is is smaller Um, and so and then there's been over the last sort of five years or so there have been a ton of studies showing that Respective studies, so rather than just taking a cross-section, where, as you you were saying, you know, you can't necessarily infer causality, but where you hmm. fo- follow people and follow their diet over many many years, there's now emerging evidence that that that, that supports that idea. Um, so that's you know that's that sort of whole dietary patterns, and of course, you know, as as scientists, one other thing that we're interested in is trying to um, work out which are the specific components of diets which can um, infer that protective effect. And so um, I've been involved Mm -hmm. in a number of um, randomised clinical trials looking at components of food, um, including things like uh, curcumin, which is uh, derived from turmeric, gives it that bright yellow Mm colour, and lots of sort of different herbal extracts, as well as whole whole dietary patterns, um, okay. and and so that's kind of led to a greater understanding of, of of which are the components in food which seem to improve brain function, and so there's a class of um, of compounds called flavonoids, and flavonoids mm-hmm. tend to are the things that give um, foods that they're bright color um, and and seem to be responsible for the health benefits of um, fruit and veg so right um, yeah that, and so there are flavonoids and things like tea so there's um yeah um these catechins in tea which are beneficial um mm-hmm. in in red wine um and in um in fruit and vegetables uh particularly in, in berries uh, you know brightly colored berries um karen Ch- uh, charlton at the uh she, um she's in one of the universities in new south wales is doing some work on uh, what she's calling the purple diet so um right that's things like uh you know um obviously berries but also includes um, uh, things like, you know, purple red cabbage and, and yeah, uh, other yeah. purple foods. Uh, I don't know if aubergines. In so, there.
0: like that dark, dark colour.
1: Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, Incredible. And so, for example, if we look at uh, curcumin, uh, you know, our work has shown that curcumin improves hippocampal function so so you know the kind of tasks which the hippocampus um, drives um, and then uh, you know, the other thing that I've been involved with recently is um, helping to develop a, a, a drink made from New Zealand uh, red currants and I think you know I have for, for full disclosure here to be really transparent I am the um, chief scientific officer for for the company so i put that out there and make that
0: yeah well I'd actually love to like perfect segue to go into the work you are doing with Arepa I've mentioned I've spoken about Arepa before on my page and on the podcast so I'd love to yeah talk about the work that you do with them
1: okay so 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 Arepa is um, uh, a a drink that I help to um, formulate design alongside um, alongside the, the the owners of the company um and it's the, the sort of the sort of hero ingredient, if you like, is uh, a, a special type of New Zealand um, blackcurrant, which has these really amazing properties in that in that um, it has a direct effect on one of the brain's neurotransmitters, so or, or rather an enzyme that affects several neurotransmitters called. Um, Mono- monoamine oxidase, um, which I I usually call, just call monamine oxidase, um, although mm-hmm. one of my ex-postdocs told me off because you heard an interview. <laughs> You're saying it wrong. So um, a- apologies if I do, but yeah, mono- monoamine or monamine oxidase, which is an enzyme that, um, that breaks down dopamine and serotonin in the body. And these... Uh, berries have been shown to inhibit that breakdown so they just allow um dopamine and, and serotonin and, and actually other other transmitters to just be effective for a little bit longer they just sort of raise the levels and this is mm. not um you know sometimes you see these studies where what's happened is that uh you know the, the enzyme is there in a in a test tube and somebody sort of yeah, put you know put more berries than you could eat in a week on there, or the equivalent of, and you see this effect. This is, these are sort of you know feeding studies in humans where um, right has been taken. So this is an actual in vivo human effect. It's not, um, it's not, it's not just theoretical. Um, yeah, definitely. And they also and it's contain, on
0: humans, which is a big difference as well. Yeah, exactly. When you're doing the study on humans, yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. And and so this. um this, this sort of monamine oxidase inhibition is you know, is real and measurable. And that has a knock-on effect on a number of things like um, sort of improving aspects of cognition, particularly um, actually attention. So the idea that, you know, you can, you can really focus over a, a longer mm. period. And that itself then has knock-on effects to things like memory because obviously if you can focus and have better concentration um things like memory are likely to increase. Um, and and of course you know mood so people will feel a little bit more alert. Um, and this work has been, you know, it's, it's, it's a series of quite small studies. I don't want to overstate, you know, the, the but it's currently being replicated in much larger studies, which um, aren't published yet, well, in fact, aren't complete yet. They're still ongoing in New Zealand. Um, And um, so, so, you know, it's really exciting. And the other, and they also um, contain really high levels of vitamin C, which which, um, Mm -hmm. benefits, of course. And in the formulation, we also added a couple of other things. One is um, theanine which you may have heard of, theanine is a component of um, green tea and a series of experiments, in, including um, some that I've been involved with, uh, previous to my involvement with the rapper, have shown that it increases, um, it has a sort of strange kind of both relaxing and alerting effect. And I think the best way... Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's been described to me is that idea that when you're in a sort of flow state, when you're, yes. when you're, when you're sort of in the zone and uh, you know, what you can just handle, whatever is being thrown at you, you know, that's a beautiful feeling. And so, um, so what theanine seems to do in, in, in our experiments is um, it seems to shut down or, or slightly inhibit the areas of the brain which are not involved in being on a task. So imagine you're mm-hmm. you're just focusing on a cognitive task say whatever it is and you've got to filter out all of the noise that's irrelevant to that, you know, wh- whether that's sort of, you know, literal noise or whether it's, you know, in- intrusive thoughts, not in a kind of pathological way but just, you know, you're thinking just oh, in general, yeah,
0: distractive thoughts. Yeah,
1: uh, i better just take you know I'll just open that tab or I'll just you know, my phone's buzzing I'll check my text or whatever and of course we're always we're being bombarded by millions of, of stimuli potentially every second and it's it's yeah. just sort of carving out the stimuli which are relevant to the task um and so theanine seems to be able to help to uh, suppress the the noise the non-relevant aspects um, mm. And so it's, so there's thin in there, and then there's an extract of um, there's a, it's, it's a, an extract of a, a tree of the bark of a, a New Zealand tree which has been shown to have very powerful antioxidant properties. And so that's likely to, or we know that it imparts um, long-term benefits to the brain. So the brain is extremely energetic. It, um you know for most of us it's about um two percent of our body weight but it's constantly using um you know 20 or 20 or 25 percent of the body's energy and that's mm. you know you don't have to be trying to uh you know you, you don't have to be reading einstein for that to happen it's it's all the time it's burning away at all of yeah. this energy um in the form of oxygen and glucose but that that has a cost because um, because it means that the brain is very susceptible to what's called oxidative stress which is the sort of the type of damage that antioxidants protect against uh, and, and, and
0: could you go into that a bit further about oxidative stress and how how firstly how that's happening obviously using the energy with your brain but why that's then causing damage?
1: Yeah, it's, it's because of, um, the, it's, it's essentially because the, the chemical reactions which occur to provide energy, to provide um, it's ATP, adenosine tri- mm-hmm. triphosphate, um, unless that's really tightly regulated, it will produce a number of damaging molecules, um, things like, well, free radicals, for example. And so these will, will damage tissue if they're left unchecked, but antioxidants can go in and, and mop up these damaging molecules. So that's right, yeah. that's essentially it. And then the other side of it, which is quite interesting, is that even though the brain uses that really high level of, um, of energy, it doesn't store glucose, or it stores very mm-hmm. negligible stores of glucose, in the form of a, a molecule called, called glycogen. So in um, tissue like, like muscles or the liver, we have these stores of this this molecule glycogen, which is like a um, big sort of candy floss type of molecule with branched bits of, of glucose, of sugar, and that can be kind of broken off and used to meet ongoing energy demands. Um, you mm-hmm. know, eventually it will be depleted, which is why... You will get, you know, uh, cramp, for example, if you, you know, if you sort of exercise, you know, your, your legs too much if you're not used to it. But um, mm-hmm. the, um, bec- the brain, what doesn't store, or it stores very little glycogen, which means that not only is it really energetic, it requires a constant supply of nutrients, of glucose uh, and oxygen, actually through the blood supply, which is why, you know, the brain is very, very uh, richly vascularized. It's got a very rich blood supply. Um, You know, you may know that, you know, the brain is actually sort of, if you open up a skull, it actually looks pink rather than grey because of all the Mm -hmm. the blood vessels there. And... um, Wow. and, And so anything that can improve the supply of blood to the brain or how well the brain uses energy is likely to have a uh, you know, have a benefit to cognitive function. and it turns out that many of these flavonoids that I referred to earlier do improve blood flow, including to the brain right. so so this whole this whole um, kind of model can be seen in terms of supply and demand to the brain when the brain, is demanding more energy, which it does when, you know, it's actually a really interesting phenomenon that that kind of um, feeling that you get of, of mental effort, when you when you can almost feel that there's, you know, there's a strain, brain strain, something <laughs> kind of think, is, yeah. uh, is actually does correspond to the brain using more energy. Uh, and, you know, this is how a lot of imaging studies work, actually. Uh, imaging methods work where, um, you know, it actually measures the turnover of um, things like glucose. And that's how to say PET scanning works. Um, And so um, the, yeah, and and so we think that this is part of the mechanism. So a lot of these flavonoids, um, things like uh, curcumin and, and flavonoids in tea and in berries are known to improve blood flow to the brain. And we think that that could be yeah. the mechanism by which they work acutely. And then their sort of neuroprotection that they infer um, probably comes from things like having anti-inflammatory effects um, and antioxidant effects. Yep.
0: Yeah. And so, well, yeah, that's exactly what I was about to ask you, how it's it, it makes sense then, then if you're increasing the blood flow, you're getting those acute effects, but then you're going to be improving your brain health overall, connectivity, things like synaptogenesis that you were talking about before. And also this kind of, I've spoken about on my podcast before, this cognitive reserve, the idea of mm. cognitive reserve and what you are talking about with exercise, you know, diet, always using your mind. And I guess if you're taking things that are like nootropics, they're going to- I guess increase that side of cognitive reserve where you're using your mind, problem-solving, focusing on a task, and that then
1: would improve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you you, you put it extremely well, this idea that there's this by using the brain, um, you know, by engaging in, um, you know, sort of new new challenges, new mental challenges or, you know, the I guess the famous um, examples of things like learning a new instrument or doing a lot of crosswords Mm. and Sudoku or a a different language um, seems to build up this kind of um, this sort of shield a bit that has to be chipped away before before um, the sort of core functions go and yeah that and that's sort of termed cognitive reserve and actually it's very interesting um, what. Uh, when you when you talk about that in the context of also taking um you know something that might benefit the brain Uh, one of my colleagues actually did a study um on a um a plant extract called bacopa bacopa Mm -hmm. monieri which is um a herb that's been been around in um um ayurvedic medicine so indian medicine for for centuries and there's a one or well actually there's a couple but a very very highly standardized extracts, and he showed that um, administering bacopa in combination with um, cognitive training actually increased a, a brain marker of synaptogenesis in humans so again it's a wow. single study it needs to be replicated but um, yeah that was my my colleague Konstau who, who ran that that study so um yeah there's there's definitely something in there and i think this idea of um of um multimodal kinds of um approaches to to staving off cognitive decline is is really gaining a lot of traction at the moment so um in finland there's a, an ongoing study called uh, the finger trial and that's been looking at a combination of things so diet exercise um you know socializing meditation etc to try and you know get get everything the idea being that there's this almost a a kind of fail safe and in fact my uh, another colleague is leading a trial that i'm i'm also involved in called the MedWalk trial um this is Mm -hmm. running out of swinburne university along with the university of south australia and um a trial is looking at a combination of Mediterranean diet and exercise in people who are in um, you know, residential homes. So these are right. sort of uh, senior people who they, they they don't have cognitive decline or dementia, but they're kind of when people move into these sort of facilities, they they seem to be at higher risk. Um, so so this is a big government-funded trial which is actually looking at how many of these people convert to dementia so looking at looking at reducing the risk of, of dementia through this what could be an incredibly simple intervention you know it's it's literally yeah Mediterranean diet and walking every day so for a few times yeah. a week
0: why why do you think that these people are at a higher risk is it because they're they just slow down. Is it that idea that?
1: Yeah, have retired, I mean, I, they've
0: slowed down. I, I,
1: it's not really known. It might be something to do with a, a sudden change of, of environment. So it could be mm-hmm. this, um, or and and also a, a slightly unchanging environment as well. We know that um, in order for memories to um, you know to be effectively formed, we need what, what are called um, um, event boundaries which is mm-hmm. why, for example, um, over the last couple of years, it's really hard to pinpoint when things have happened in time, because we've had a pretty unchanging environment. Um, yeah, that's really so, interesting, true. So, you know, event event boundaries are things like, you know, I, I, you know, for example, for me, I can probably moving from the UK to Australia, I can sort of you know, I know what, I can sort of put things as things that happened before and afterwards or, you know, birth of my daughter. Yeah, or, you know. so my mum
0: always talks about that from when yeah. she migrated. She says that she always refers to everything before the date or yeah. after the date to exactly. her migration
1: to Australia. And, yeah. and and we all use those things um, to form effective memories, but, you know, there might be very minor, you know, might might be very minor events. you know. could just be, you know, was that before or after I went to the supermarket on Tuesday or something. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. It's so to a lesser extent, we can use those trivial um, or l- less momentous kind of events. Um, so that that might be part of it. But I think really we don't know exactly what the mechanisms are. We just know that that, that, that exists. And of course, you know, there's also um, the effects of age are superimposed on it. So certainly um, after the age of, sort of 50 or 60, we know that the most brain areas um, undergo a fairly linear decline. You know, they just sort of mm-hmm. keep going down over the years, whereas the hippocampus, kind of the volume of the hippocampus at a population level, it's sort of nonlinear. It kind of takes quite a steep dive after that age. Um,
0: Do you think that could be a combination of exactly what you just spoke about, that there's less less things happening in their day, they're probably maybe using that part of their brain less. So then it's maybe declining at a faster rate.
1: Yeah. I mean, that certainly will, will contribute to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's really important to to try and engage and keep, you know, k- keep the brain active, um, you know, in, in, in sort of later years or past the sort of fifth and sixth decade.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So can we talk about now with... Okay, so obviously, ideally, you want everyone, people should be having nootropics, of course, exercising, eating well, but nootropics to be kind of that added benefit, that added layer
1: yeah, that you can I do mean, to your brain. I, I what, what is really interesting, actually, uh, is, is a, a, an emerging trend, which seems to be that certainly over, so, so there are things which can be done for a sort of quick fix. But I think you know really that there's no substitution for um, having a, you know, a really good diet and exercising. That's that's clearly yeah. you know that's, that's probably the two things that you can do for your brain. Um, mm-hmm. But but we also know that most people don't. I mean you know in in, in, in Australia um, I think fewer than ten percent of the population, for example, meet. The guidelines for um, fruit and vegetables. So that's you know that's just yeah. I mean, right. you know, if we could get, I mean, and 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 of course most people know that it's good for them as well. It's just it, it's,
0: that's it. I mean, we're all aware, yeah. and we've been told forever, you know, five veg and three fruit yeah, or something exactly. a day.
1: Yeah, yeah. and um, so I, you know, I think the answer is um, that that there is a place for for no tropics for for. for things um, and one thing that is you know nice about um arepa for example is it's very close to a food it's a you know it's a drink that's just yeah. made from the juice of, of um of the berries with you know a couple of added goodies but that's you know it, i really like that idea that it's not mm. something that's like really synthetic um and i think also the other side of it is with emerging evidence for these sort of compounds, um, is that people are, um, I think, turning a little bit away from caffeine as well. So caffeine's yes. an interesting, really interesting drug in that it's, you know, it's been around for for centuries. Um, actually, um, not not so many people know this, but caffeine actually um, decreases blood flow. It's a va- vasoconstrictor. It actually uh, narrows nice. blood vessels. So there are two, it has two actions. One is as a, one is a pure chemical reaction where it sort of props up um, certain neurotransmitters uh, that are involved in sort of waking up the brain. So that's mm-hmm. purely chemical. And then it's also a vasoconstrictor. So that, so basically the chemical there's a kind of fight between the chemical and the blood flow effects where the chemical effect wins, but that yes. has consequences in that there's, there's, um, there's a sort of blood, a vasoconstricting effect. So, you know, it might be... That, That's
0: really interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so um, what, what's also interesting is that many of the ways in which we um, consume caffeine is in combination with a vasodilator so coffee coffee contains Mm -hmm. chlorogenic acids which are vasodilators they expand the blood vessel so um i i don't think anyone's really looked at it specifically but it may be that um that you know that helps the effects of caffeine to some degree um yeah but i've i mean i've seen evidence for example showing a reduction in blood flow from caffeinated coffee but an increase in decaffeinated coffee um that's so
0: so what do you for all the big coffee drinkers out there do you think (laughs) there's a bit of a limit on what on what they should be drinking every day
1: yeah look I think um this is an area where you're probably aware that uh, from the headlines it's sort of you know you can read um yeah coffee's good coffee's good for you and coffee's bad for you in, in the same week in the same newspaper um, yeah there was a l- large study from the UK that seemed to show going above four or five cups of coffee a day um, actually was bad for, for the brain um, mm-hmm. but there seemed to be it seemed to be driven by a few people who were you know consuming a very large amounts um, so you know I think the uh, the guidelines from EFSA, which is the European Food Standards Agency, suggests that um, you should limit your input to 400 milligrams a day. Uh, right. Okay. Kind of, you know, standard coffee is sort of 80 to 100.
0: Yeah. So that's. So I find that normally I, I mean I drink maybe three coffees a day, but what I started doing a couple of months ago, I did started drinking a Reppa and okay. i find that i can have I normally to be honest my first coffee is more of a social thing i go out meet someone have a coffee but then when i'm going to sit down plan a podcast or sit down to do some writing i actually now prefer to drink a repper okay. i find yeah i don't i'm not sure i find that it, i i feel like i'm i am more focused and i feel like it lasts longer for me yep.
1: well that fits very well with the science <laughs> because okay good <laughs> yeah. Um, If you look at the, uh, if you look at the um, MAO inhibition, the Mm -hmm. monoamine monoamine oxidase inhibition, those effects kick in by 15 minutes and are still evident um, four hours later. Mm. So that's, um, and, and they weren't measured any later than that. So, you know, we've got no reason to think that they, they don't endure for, you know, five or six hours. Um yeah. and then and then they've gone we know they've gone by twenty four hours. But that so I think what you're saying um fits in very well w- with the science. I think the other thing is that um for many people um caffeine can cause a little bit of anxiety and jitteriness. Um and we know yeah. that there's a there's a um proportion of the population who carry a gene which just um is, is responsible for that and it's a, it's a gene it's just a change in the molecule that caffeine binds to
0: oh that's so interesting yeah because i know some people that one cup they can handle the second yeah. cup it's game over for yeah. the rest of the day they just they they can't do it their heart yeah. is racing
1: yeah and but, other
0: people are unaffected by that as far as anxiety goes
1: yeah so so there's a um there's a a change of what we call a polymorphism. It's just a change in the sequence of, um, of, um, uh, of uh, nucleotides in the gene that code for, um, it's called the adenosine receptor. The adenosine, Mm -hmm. adenosine is a molecule which accumulates during the day and is responsible for, um, you know, sleepiness makes because it blocks, it blocks the neurotransmitters that kind of, arouse the brain and mm-hmm. so adenosine sort of accumulates during the day and it, and it stops those um, it sort of inhibits the, those neurotransmitters so you know eventually we go to sleep and um, caffeine inserts itself into the same receptors as adenosine but it doesn't have an effect it's like um it's like putting a key in a lock but snapping the end off it so you can't put the proper key in and so right, yes and so caffeine prevents the action of adenosine and so the brain remains kind of awake mm-hmm. so, so that and some people have a um you know a, a change in in that receptor which is genetic which um means that they get just jittery and anxious from and, and you know what you're saying is right because most of the work on that area is looking at maybe, you know, the equivalent of, of sort of around two cups of coffee, so about mm-hmm. you know, 200 mil- milligrams of caffeine.
0: Yeah, yep. that's really fascinating. I think a lot of listeners will be very fascinated <laughs> to hear that because I, I feel like I know quite a few people that have that. And, yeah, they'd be looking at trying other things. So it's really interesting everything you've said about all the different food groups, berries, yeah. nootropics, things like a arepa. Um, that you can use as an alternative That's I find personally quite effective for myself um, yeah. instead of having to rely on coffee multiple mm-hmm. times a day, I feel, which is really nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good.
0: Well thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on talking about that. That was incredible. I've got so much to unpack as well. Every time you were saying something new, I'm thinking, "Oh, I could do like a I could so go into that one topic and do a whole episode on that." Yeah. But that was really incredible. So I appreciate that. Appreciate
1: your time. Okay, thanks. I enjoyed it really. Really excellent questions.
0: Guys, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I loved speaking with Professor Andrew Scully. He's obviously so knowledgeable, but there's also so much food for thought pardon the pun, um, with everything to do with nootropics and cognitive enhancement. And for me, I was literally, as the episode's going, he's mentioning so many things that I'm like, oh my God, I can do an episode on this, on that, on that. So yeah, really excited for all the episodes that are going to come from what I gathered from this episode. So I hope you guys really enjoyed that. And have an amazing week. As always, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.